Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall, and it's my privilege to bring to you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What is bioethics and why does it dominate our ethical discussions today? What stories about our bodies does our culture tell us? And what might a theological account look like? How does a Christian view of life on earth challenge ideas of autonomy and freedom as the goal of human flourishing? And what difference does the resurrection of Jesus' body make to our imagination and hope for our bodily future? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Robert Song. Robert is Professor of Theological Ethics at Durham University. And our question today is, birth, death and everything in between. Why does a theological response to bioethics matter today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Robert Song, welcome to Talking Theology. Lovely, thank you very much. Robert, tell us a little bit about your present role. You're Professor of Ethics within the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University. Tell us about that role, and, and, and what are the roles you took in order to kind of get to that place? Uh, yes, I'm a professor of theological ethics in, uh, in the Department of Theology and Religion. And that role mainly involves uh, the usual round of being an academic, teaching, uh, supervising undergraduate dissertations, supervising postgraduate dissertations, and uh, researching as well. Ethics is quite a popular discipline, so I end up doing quite a lot of it. Before that, uh, I was the uh, ethics teacher of Cranmer. Um, so I taught at Cranmer for 10 years and uh, knew the Cranmer scene very well. And then taught, taught many people uh, and uh, saw your face around the corridors uh, at times as well. Yes, as, as, as a, an assiduous student, <laughs> no doubt. But uh, <laughs> I don't recall. <laughs> Robert, your, your research over the years has explored many aspects of ethics. But today we're looking particularly at bioethics. Can you first of all just give us a description or a, a definition of what we mean when we talk about bioethics? Bioethics basically means the ethics of bioscience, in other words, of life. Uh, we often, when we talk about bioethics, we often mean biomedical ethics, which means um, ethics and, uh, and medicine. Uh, but originally, had, um, the person who invented it, someone called Van Potter, back in the 1950s, he, uh, he really meant by it, quite literally, the ethics of the whole of life. So he included environmental ethics very much within it. And that's something which I'm very keen to restore. In fact, if anything, I'm moving in that direction away from. Uh, mainstream medical ethics. But the other aspect is not just medical ethics, but also the ethics of the life sciences. And I've been very much involved in that as well. Where did that interest in bioethics as a general topic first come from? And I guess, how have you found that sort of interest developing over the years? I, I did my PhD on theology and liberal political theory. And I was quite uh, taken by one of the writers then, a Canadian called George Grant, who was writing in the 60s and 70s. And he's a philosopher, and he talked about liberalism as a technological form of politics. Now, without going into de- lots of detail about that, he, he, I thought, produced a very, very interesting account of the way that modern politics is dominated by technological forms of thinking. 
And uh, that became part of my thinking about the way the modern world goes. So I've had a sort of background interest in the theology of technology ever since then. And I thought I'd go and after writing my PhD, I'd, I'd work on the theology of technology. And most theology, most philosophy of technology is done at an exceptionally high theoretical level. It's just kind of stratospherically irrelevant to, to most ordinary technologists. And so I, I thought, actually, in order to say anything worthwhile, even at a theoretical level, you have to know something about practice. So I looked around for technologies I might be interested in. I, I landed up on uh, genetics. So uh, I wrote a book on genetics. Uh, and also, at the same time, uh, partly because of various other kinds of involvement, uh, I was quite interested and engaged in uh, ethics at the beginning of life, particularly uh, ethics of the embryo and, and so on. So, so that's how I got involved. You mentioned earlier that for you, bioethics is about not simply biomedical ethics, although it involves that, but rather the ethics of life itself and moving in that direction. I wonder, therefore, within that broader remit, could you just kind of map out for us some of the contemporary issues within bioethics where, you know, you find some of the the really interesting research and case studies are taking place? Perhaps give us a few examples of those. Well, in one sense, bioethics is about birth, death and everything in between. Um, and I think probably it is interesting that um, many of the most uh, disputed questions do still um, circulate around questions of the beginning of life and the end of life. So if you looked historically, the kinds of questions, the topics, as were, that people would look at in bioethics would be things like abortion and euthanasia and organ donation and that sort of thing. Then along came things like uh, embryo research and stem cell research. More recently, the kinds of questions that people have looked at have been ethics. As I said, beginning of life, what, what can we do to embryos to make our children healthier? And then at the end of life, historical questions about euthanasia have turned into, I think, some quite interesting discussions at the moment about um, what might a new Ars Moriendi look like, um, a new art of dying, and what do we mean by that? And I suppose the area which has probably engaged me more has been somewhere slightly in between those, which is about for working out from genetics into questions of genetic engineering and gene editing, as it's now often called, some new technologies. And from that arose questions of post-humanism, and then that fed into questions about artificial intelligence and uh, the future of human um, intelligence and human beings, cyborgs and, and all the rest of it. So, so uh, another kind of branch has opened up for me in, in more recent years than, than the sort of beginning of life stuff, which I'd mainly concentrated on before. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the questions and those topics around beginning and end of life. But you mentioned that area around genetic engineering or gene editing. Can you give us a few examples about just what is possible now that science is made possible and kind of just outline why, why does that press kind of certain challenging ethical buttons? Yeah, I'm, I'm people, talk about, people have always talked about genetic engineering, and it's been an issue more or less ever since we've understood roughly how, how genes work. Um, and it sort of goes in ways, about every 20 years, there's, there's a kind of new panic about genetic engineering. So there was one in the late 60s, and then there was another in the late 90s. There's been another in about the last five years, and that's because of a very powerful new techniques uh, just taken off called CRISPR-Cas9, which allows quite literally just, and they call it gene editing for a very specific reason, which is that you can literally take the letters of the genetic code and you can take ones out and put uh, gene bases back in, uh, DNA bases, uh, exactly to order. Um, and it's a very, very powerful technique and it allows you to do all sorts of things. And at the moment, of course, they're using it to do things like 
putting on uh, odd bits of flies and odd other bits of flies and so on, um, and that they are beginning to do it in relation to certain aspects of uh, of human beings. But it's it's potentially the power of it is is really knows no no limit in, in principle. Uh, the, the main issues are that we just don't know what um, most um, interventions genetically do, and because that is that is the case, um, most of them regard as very dangerous. Uh, quite rightly. Um, and so there's even amongst uh, those who like to move at quite a pace, there's still a certain amount of caution about uh, how fast we should go. And you then sort of talked about, again, one of the implications of that would be post-humanism, and that's touching in with AI and artificial intelligence. Just sketch out for us again, what are the sort of things that look like they could be possible um, both within that that sphere of post-humanism and the way it kind of links in with AI. Again, just to kind of map out the territory we're looking at today. The idea of post-humanism or transhumanism, there's a debate about what terms are best and what they refer to, is that we can enhance human beings beyond their present capacities. And that enhancement could take genetic forms. It could take the form of uh, various kinds of intervention in, in the brain, uh, neural interfaces and so on. Uh, the kinds of things which allow us to uh, connect human beings to neuron, uh, to computer networks and, and so on, so that we really can be um, tied in in some very, very precise ways. I'm a very, I remember once having a debate in Cambridge with the person who claimed to be the world's first cyborg. And what he'd done, quite literally, he he'd, um, he'd put in a chip into his arm and attached it to his nerves. So simply just by moving his arm, literally moving his fingers like that, he could move the fingers on a robot arm in the room next door. And he, he didn't have to pull any leaves or anything. He just thought it and just moved his arms and, and over there because it was connecting via computer network to that robot arm. And uh, he had lots of other things like he, um, he did the same thing for his wife and then tried to send the message saying, I love you. And all she got was a fuzzy feeling and, and uh, various other things. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that, that's just really the very, very first. And you can instantly imagine, for example, military application. Uh, one of the big problems, of course, in, in most military contexts is that, is that the human being in the loop is, is the problem because they say slow. And often you need decisions to be made long before a human mind can make them. For example, when you're firing a missile or, when, or whatever it is, or when you have to respond to the incoming thing. And so you can easily see how you might well want to do some very, very fast feedback kinds of um, things in a military context. And one of the real issues, as ever, is that something which has got a very, very good bona fide medical use can also have a, another kind of use, which is at least up for question. You sketched out for us very helpfully the, the contours of this fascinating ethical landscape from birth to death and everything in between. And we've seen that everything in between is, is increasingly an area of innovation and therefore potential challenge and certainly worth ethical reflection discussion. Therefore, let's go back to the sort of foundations with which we might approach this ethical uh, landscape. What are, for you, some of the core theological and biblical resources that we might draw on or have with us as we even approach some of this broad area of bioethics, as well as these specific contemporary debates? When bioethics started off in the the 50s and Bioethics really sort of came into its own in the 60s and 70s. And at that time, big contributors were Christian. They were um, Catholics, Protestants, also some, some Jews as well. Prominent religious contributions to bioethics. 
during the course of the 70s and 80s, that changed to the point where it became an almost entirely secular um, enterprise. And I think there were some very important reasons for that. The most important of them was that there was a general secular philosophical perception that uh, religious bases for bioethics couldn't be the basis for public bioethics. Um, if you like, um, bioethics, Christian bioethics could only be bioethics for Christians, not for everyone. Now, there has been a response to that, and um, some bioethists like Stanley Howas um, has been amongst the most influential saying that we should have an ecclesial ethics, that is an ethics um, which is uh, a church-based ethics in which um, living out Christian ethics as the church is the most important thing. And he, he, he thought of that as a response to this universalizing, secularizing bioethics. Because he say, well, you know, what's the point? If you have to leave your Christian faith at the door when you go into the, um, to the committee room where they're having a big bioethical discussion, what's the point of being a Christian? And so he started up, that up. Now, I suppose I feel... I'm part of the generation following on from that, which says, yes, it's absolutely right that Christian ethics should recover its own confidence. It should be properly theological ethics, not just a pale Christianized version of secular ethics, as well as secular ethics baptized. So it should be properly Christian. But how does that counter story of Christian ethics? How does it become a mode of encounter? And so allowing an authentically Christian bioethics to encounter the secular realm, I think, is... is um, for me, one way of naming um, what the task is. And so that requires specific kinds of theological resources. And for me, the most important thing is that one's engaging theology and Bible together. You can't just say, here's the Bible and there's an end of it. You have to think through, okay, how can we have a picture of the world, a picture of human life, uh, a picture of death, which is thickly informed and richly informed and based in and, and, and if you like, um, scaffolded by the Bible but which is also forming its own overall theological picture. And it's, it's that kind of working out, because, of course, they didn't have neural interfaces um, as such in the New Testament, um, and it won't tell you about artificial intelligence as such. But uh, as you think carefully about what the biblical concerns were in, in any area, and they're all the mainstream concerns about the nature of human beings, the nature of the body, the relation of the body and soul, and uh, birth, of death, and so on, how do those, all those themes, work in relation to our contemporary concerns? And I think once one works from that kind of thick, rich picture, uh, you can actually build up a very, very engaging theological picture, which also touches on and, and can be meaningful to people who don't necessarily share a Christian view of things. I wonder if you could do that perhaps with one of those topics. I don't know whether the human body or birth or death. What, what might that thick engagement of, of of scripture in its theological sense have to sort of contribute i'm not asking for quick answers but you know just give us an account of what is perhaps distinctive in one of those areas that is important for you uh and let's just take i'm thinking about the body which is obviously going to be essential to any christian thinking about about bioethics and one of the things that i think christians do want to say about the body is that we do believe in some kind of body soul unity However you to conceptualize that, it's, it's a constant theme in the New Testament that uh, Christians are not to separate themselves and to regard themselves as above their bodies. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul goes against the sophoi, um, uh, the wise, self-proclaimed wise people who think they're free to do anything in relation to their body. could lead, on the one hand, to an extreme sexual permissiveness or to an extreme um, sort of um, very strict uh, control of the body. 
uh, and interesting leads to both in both both directions. But the belief, the Christian belief in the incarnation, the Christian belief in the resurrection of the body, and not of course the immortality of the soul. Uh, the way that the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, the Old Testament, talks about the relationship between the wholeness of ourselves, um, I think is all indicators that some of the ways that we do bioethics in the modern world are seriously questionable. So I'll just take one one example. When we think about how, when does death happen, for example, on the question of the determination of death? Nowadays, one of the two ways in which most jurisdictions around the world um, accept um, that people have died is through so-called brain death. But the problem is with brain death is, well, there are various kinds of problems with brain death. Um, uh, brain dead people can be declared dead, officially dead, but brain dead people give birth and, uh, and, and those, those sorts of things. So, so there are plenty of sorts of things that you would not expect dead people to do. So there, are, there do seem to be uh, various kinds of problems with the notion of brain death. Now, one response to that has been to say, the only bit of us that really matters is ourselves, our memories, um, and biographical account of ourselves, not our bodies. I don't want to be a shell of myself. I don't want to be a husk. That's what we say. Now, I do think that Christians want to say, look, just uh, stop a moment at least and just think, okay, what does the fact that we say we are body, soul, unities mean um, in that kind of context? And might it mean that we actually want to put in question the idea that we're only our uh, biographical selves we're only our memories um, and that that has nothing to do with our bodies and i think i do want to say actually somehow if we really believe in the resurrection body as the resurrection of the whole body the whole person then we somehow we want to at least throw a question against that kind of view um that kind of view is put by the well-known utilitarian philosopher peter singer who wants to talk about persons as opposed to bodies and i don't think i want to make that kind of opposition when it comes to looking at bioethics and and in particular the exploration of what is now possible you've written a helpful i think diagnostic question which is and i quote does this symbolize a recognition of human limits or an attempt to transcend them and you've suggested that we kind of frame that question when we think about that and you've noted that a lot of the work of bioethics comes from a desire to gain technological control over the body in order to have freedom, autonomy, and the right not to suffer. So how does bioethics expose some of the questions and fears, therefore, at the heart of humanity? In other words, behind the debates. I have to say, you're absolutely right to ask what's behind the debates, because bioethics is a constant litter of dilemmas, if you like. You know, every day you can, if you follow the right blogs, there there are, I, I once counted that 82 journals devoted only to bioethics, each producing you know, a dozen issues or whatever it is. And there are many, many other philosophical, theological, legal, and uh, other journals which also have major bioethical components and sociological ones and so on. So it's a major, major industry, and it, it's been a, by far the largest area of ethics in the last half century in terms of sheer output. But of course, its depth has been variable, if we, let's put it that way. And I think my concern has been how do we try and get the big picture? How do we... Um, not just simply respond like an ambulance to the latest incident, but how do we just get a better sense of the deeper, if you like, culture dynamics of of what's happening? And so uh, I've been part of a group of biotists who've tried to tell a story about the way that modern culture, going back to the 17th century, has relayed, has replaced our sense of what nature is and our place in nature 
um, and has given us an instrumental account of nature, our relationship to nature. So we've instrumentalized nature and made it, tortured it, as Francis Bacon said, to, to um, make it give up its secrets. And that's led to a kind of dualism between body and soul. Um, it's led to an emphasis on uh, maximizing autonomy and my own personal individual identity, expressing my identity, and to eliminating suffering. And there's, there's a whole train. You can trace it through the rise of utilitarianism, the rise of deism, romanticism, and so on. There's a whole lot of different influences which have led to um, a large number of the ways that we think now think about ourselves. And of course, that inevitably influences our thinking about medicine and about bioethics. Um, and I'd want to make very clear, and I've, I've been, I've had, I've, although I've never talked about this in environmental terms, ever since I first started thinking about these questions in the 80s, I always had the environment as, as really the background thought in, in, in my thinking. And the kind of critique I'm making here of the instrumentalization of nature is exactly the same one that one might want to put to use in environmental ethics. By instrumentalizing nature, I mean the idea that we we can take nature, treat it as raw material that any value or purposes or importance in its own right, if you like, and we can put it to our uses, whatever. And talking um, when he talks about um, in Isengard is put where they, they, they rape the earth. He's, he's portraying exactly this kind of approach to the environment. And in a sense, it's the same kind of approach that we're taking to our bodies. The idea that we simply do to our bodies whatever we like in order to enhance them, in order to make them live indefinitely, whatever it happens to be. And all of that is focused on the quest for personal, personal autonomy to eliminate suffering, to maximise human freedom. And basically, we'll use anything in order to achieve that goal. Is that right? I, absolutely bang on. I mean, there's a question, of course, about who the we is in, in that. But there's a very strong cultural drift in that direction. All sorts of countercurrents as well. But, but yes, I think you, you've named, named it exactly. So if we want to look within bioethics at that big picture, you talked about a thick theological description. What is that counter narrative? That, that, that offers a different story beyond maximizing autonomy, maximizing personal freedom, eliminating suffering. Where does that come from and what does the beginning of that narrative look like? I think we can draw a picture between two stories about what human beings are, which are at war in modern culture. One picture is the idea that we're autonomous individuals who are maximizing our own self-interest. And that's the characteristic picture given to us, of course, by uh, many forms of capitalism. That picture of the self says, I'm autonomous. All my relations with anyone else, um, even their close family relations, are contingent. They don't essentially constitute me. I'm constituted by myself. I'm an atomistic whole. I don't need anyone else. I don't need to suffer, if I can possibly avoid it. And I think that is absolutely summed up in the idea, I am a rock, I am a fortress, I don't need to suffer, nothing can hurt me, nothing can harm me. And I think one can counter that to an idea of persons in community. First of all, one's recognising that we are essentially constituted by our relations with each other. I'm not just contingently related to my parents or to my siblings, uh, but they're part of who I am. Many of the most important things about my life, you would never guess this from many modern constructions of the liberal self, that we are agents and we simply choose our lives and that's the end of it. But actually, almost all the most important things about ourselves are things that happen to us. 
um, which we didn't choose. And they include our parents. I was born. Uh, exactly. Being born at all. Um, your, your siblings. It includes what gender you are, what colour your skin is, what social class you're born into, what country you're born into, and a whole range of other things. Your genetic makeup, which, of course, is really significant in, in one's overall makeup. None of those things did you choose. Um, and yet they're really, really important for our lives. Similarly, by saying that we are constituted as persons in community, we're saying that we have a fundamental relationship to each other, which makes us who we are. And I think that gives us a very, very different picture of what human beings are. And it's fundamentally, I think, much more egalitarian, if you like, rather than libertarian. The first picture is a very libertarian, individualistic picture. The second one is a communal, egalitarian picture. And you find versions of each of them on both the left and the right politically. Now, I think the picture I've drawn up of the modern individual, the autonomous individual, is, is very much like the first libertarian picture. And that's what I'm dating back to the, if you like, to the 17th century and in all its roots. The second one is one which might be presented to us um, in many secular contexts. It's presented as an Ubuntu picture of human beings. And that, of course, has a strong Christian take as well. Um, I am because we are. And I think that is a very strong Christian picture of, of, of what we are. Jesus says, love your neighbor is, is one of the two commands on which all the other commands rest, because love is the very nature of our being. Okay? It's not that we're contingent related to others, but that we're essentially related to others. And similarly, uh, we are, before we're individual Christians, we are born into the body of Christ, to the church. We are within a community, in a sense, which gives us our identity before we start to learn what it is to be ourselves as individuals. We're recording this podcast in Easter season, just a couple of weeks after Easter. And in one of your articles, you mentioned that the impact, and you've said it already in our interview today, about the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I quote you when you say, a properly theological count of the body will relate hopes for the human body to the nature of the resurrection body. Christians believe that their bodies will be decisively changed for the better at the resurrection. And that cannot be irrelevant to thinking about genetic enhancements. I wonder if you'd just like to comment on, on how a belief in resurrection gives a, a kind of perspective of hope uh, in the light of, of some of the, the tough questions of bioethics. In many biological questions, I'm, I'm sort of what's called bioconservative, and I'm happy to wear that particular badge on this occasion with pride. Many bio bioconservatives would say um, we need to talk about the limits of human beings, okay? And instead of trying to constantly transcend our limits, we should recognize our limits and so on. And ultimately, I do agree with that. But if you think about the resurrection, the resurrection promises eternal life. Imperishability is what we will put on, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And that is the most post-human thing you can possibly imagine. Tom Wright quite rightly talked about the resurrection body is transphysical. Um, and this is, you know, this is transphysicality, uh, transhumanism. So I think I was meaning that in a slightly more sense, because just talking about limits can be slightly, it's slightly deadening, actually. Uh, and going back to your earlier question about um, how do we find the deeper themes going in our culture, the deeper motivations that we have. The body can be narrated to us in lots of different ways. And the secular body is narrated as, for example, the biological body or the evolutionary body. Um, and it has no, it's just a given. 
use a Latin term, it's a positum, it's posited there, it's just given, um, it's laid down. And Christians don't think that about the body. We think our body ontologically, ultimately, is, participates in the body of Christ. And therefore, the fact that Christ is raised, by that very fact means that we are raised, because our bodies do participate in the body of Christ. And therefore, we have to have a very different picture of what we are and what our bodies are than you'll get from secular bioethics. And that's the kind of thing which I'm trying to get at there. We, We can't narrate our bodies in the way that our secular culture tells us to narrate them. You described this sphere as a a litter of dilemmas, and I I wonder cheekily how you've kept your sanity while engaging in this uh, hugely complex field. But more seriously, how has research in this area shaped your own faith and discipleship and reflection on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this generation? I am a great evangelist for theology in this sense that I do think that when James says, do not be someone who doubts, he says, do not be someone who's dipsuchos, which means to have two souls, two minds, really. And uh, certainly, I think someone is dipsuchos, who has their faith over here and their reason over there. And I think one of the great things that theology does is precisely put those two together. And therefore, I just think the task of thinking theologically and being a theologian is inevitably one which can only but deepen one's faith and i would just personally testify to that being absolutely the case uh in terms of I mean, my ministry in the sort of day-to-day sense is uh is teaching and supervising and, and and so on and occasionally you know making contributions to public debate in, in one context or another so clearly it does affect everything one does uh in those kind of contexts um it's made very significant changes in my own life as well Rather than saying X, Y, and Z are the, are the direct results, I think it's just um, certainly when you do biothics properly theologically and seeing, seeing the whole the way that we think about the body, we think about illness, we think about health, we think about life, birth, and death in a theological context can't but influence everything you say and do and think. So in that sense, um, it can't but be uh, profoundly influential on, on your whole being. Robert Song. Thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.